Let's read again from our text in Matthew chapter 6. That's where we have been. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We have come now to the section where the Lord is teaching about prayer. We call this the Lord's Prayer because Jesus gave us this model. Um, may as well be called, or probably would more accurately be called, the disciples' prayer. This is how we are to pray. He says, pray then like this in verse 9 of chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, we've touched on this a bit. So just to continue uh, to build on the foundations that we've already laid down here, I want to very briefly recap some of what we've already already discussed. So there are a few things that you'll need to remember as we approach the text this morning. Number one, the Lord's Prayer is a framework and not a script. So don't confuse what I'm saying uh, when I say that. Memorized prayers are not evil. Um, in fact, they can be very helpful tools, especially when you're stuck and you just don't have the right words. But when repeating prayers from memory, it does carry with it a risk of becoming what the King James Version calls vain repetition. What we see in the ESV here is that it becomes empty phrases in verse 7. So it's just something to be careful about when you want to make sure that you're praying out of sincerity, out of the inner gonome, that's the inner working prayer, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much is the inner gonome, the inner gonome, inward working prayer. It needs to be sincere. Number two, prayer is Godward. It is toward God, to God. It's a conversation with God, our Father. Our Father who art in heaven. This is not the same thing as wishful thinking or idle speaking. Prayer is purposeful. It is intentional. It is spirit-enabled and God-directed. Our Father. You can't say our Father except by the Spirit. It is only by the Spirit that we are able to say, Abba. Right? So it is Spirit-enabled, God-directed. There is a necessary intimacy in that sentiment, in the statement, Our Father. But there is also a necessary reverence. That's why he follows it up with, Hallowed be your name. Prayer seeks to glorify God. Let your name be hallowed. That's not a statement. It's a request. I want you to be seen as holy, as righteous, as divine, as powerful, as sufficient. Let your name be hallowed. Amen. The original language, it's a request. In all your praying, let your prayer be reverent toward God. Let it glorify God. After all, He is the creator of everything. He is the one who gives you every breath that you take. Number four, prayer seeks and submits to God's will. That's verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the framework of your prayer time, you should be talking to him about his will. And furthermore, you should be talking to him about your own resistance to his will. 
So much of the Christian life is about overcoming our resistance, our natural flesh resistance to God's will. That's why in the framework of prayer, we ought to be saying, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. You should talk to God about that. Be honest with him about your resistance. It's helpful to be honest with him, to say, I'm not, I'm not really feeling obedient in this area. Ask him to help you be obedient. Ask him to help you align your will with his will so that you want what he wants. Number five, we come as beggars. That's verse 11 and the first part of verse 12. Give us this day our daily bread. Remember the, the writer of Proverbs puts it this way, don't give me too much and don't give me too little. If I have too much, I'll forget who you are. If I have too little, I'll turn from you and steal. We're crushed under a spiritual debt. That's the second part. Forgive us our debts. So we have no hope of paying our spiritual debt, but God's grace is sufficient for every debt. He offers His grace, so we ask for it and we receive it, and then that is where we have come so far in the framework that we have in the Lord's Prayer. And there are a few more things that stand out to me that we'll go over. One of them is that prayer must be connected to humble obedience. So if you're, if you're keeping count, that'd be number six, I suppose. Prayer must be connected to humble obedience. Picking up where we left off in verse 12, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then in verse 14, Jesus sort of flips it around. Flips our perspective from, from uh, being us, from coming from us to coming from God. And he says in verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15, But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. Now that, that phrasing flips things around and shifts perspective. Instead of, I have forgiven, in the prayer, I have forgiven, therefore you forgive me. That's looking at things from where I stand. It becomes you must forgive in order to be forgiven by God. That's looking at things from God's perspective or from where God stands. Now, my contention here is that Jesus is not trying to give us in this framework for prayer. He is not attempting to give us a model or a, the, mechanics, excuse, the mechanics of justification. He's not telling us how to obtain forgiveness. You must cross off X and cross off Y, and then you will be forgiven. What he's doing is he's using forgiveness as a way to show us that our prayers must be accompanied by humble obedience, or at the very least, a humble struggle to obedience. I love it the way one preacher put it. He said that, that the difference between uh, lambs and pigs, they both get dirty, but the pig wallows in it. The lamb struggles in it. Amen. Our prayer must at the very least be accompanied by a humble struggle to obey. Lord, help me, give me, grant me, and I will obey. Amen. Seek to obey. What Jesus is doing is he's going, uh, attacking our greatest area of need before God in order to demonstrate this simple truth. You cannot ask God for mercy if you have no intention of giving it. Amen. So our prayer for mercy must be accompanied by a humble obedience in mercy. 
And this can be applied to other areas of our lives as well. How can you ask God for provision if you're stingy or lazy and you refuse to participate in provision, whether it be your own provision or the provision of others? The Bible's pretty clear about the lazy person or the sluggard and the stingy person. How can you ask God to draw closer to you if you refuse to draw close to Him? You consistently put up roadblocks and distance between you and him and then you want to go in your prayer time and say oh lord i feel so alone you're not near me well what are you doing in the rest of your time what are you doing the bible says draw near to the lord and then he will draw near to you what are you doing to draw near to god humble obedience i'm asking you to draw near i must be humbly obedient at the very least struggling to do what i'm asking you to do for me i must i must meet you we meet him in repentance we must meet him in blessing. So using forgiveness as the example, I see two main pillars here. Number one, we have reason to obey. And number two, we have the power to obey. Redemption is not freedom to sin. It is freedom from sin. Grace and forgiveness are not freedom to sin. They are freedom from sin. So going on the example that Jesus gives, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And then further explaining that if you don't forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you. Our reason to forgive, our reason to obey, to humbly obey, is Jesus Christ himself. That means that we must forgive because we have been forgiven in Christ. He is a sufficient sacrifice. He is the sufficiency of God's grace. Amen. Remember what he told Paul? My grace is sufficient. Amen. Amen. And so Jesus revisits this topic in Matthew 18 when he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. So let's turn there and let's read it because it provides a great explanation, I think, of what Jesus is saying when he says, if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. So in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 23, Jesus is speaking. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. Now, there is a debt to be paid. That's the first thing we have to know. There is a legitimate debt that must be paid. There is a judgment for the wicked. The debt could not be paid by the servant. He did not have the means to pay it. Amen. Nor, in fact, would he ever have the means to pay it. We bring nothing but debt to the table. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, recognized his great debt. And he implored the master, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. So the master had compassion on him. The servant knew that he owed the debt, so he asked for patience. He asked for time to pay. The master was merciful, and he forgave the debt completely. I know you can't pay it. So the servant... What did he do? He fell at the master's feet, 
begged for mercy. The master gave him mercy over a crushing debt. That came first. Mercy for the crushing debt that could never be paid. Continuing in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found his fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii. That's a far, far less value than 10,000 talents that the servant owed the master. Orders of magnitude less. We're meant to consider this and think of this uh, the same way we would think about the difference between the U.S. national debt, which is currently sitting at around $28.9 trillion, and the debt that you owe on one of your credit cards. I mean, that's, that's the shocking, striking difference that we're meant to see here. One was forgiven of this massive debt, and now he goes and tries to collect on this little debt, far less. What does he do? He seizes the servant that owed him the little debt. He begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe, verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have we seen that before? He's asking for the same kind of mercy. Have patience with me and I will pay you, verse 30. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. So he had been forgiven a much larger debt, but he refused to pay or forgive someone else this smaller debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported him to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him, and he said to him, now, in case you're, you're not following the correlations here, this is where the father comes back into the picture. Um, the, the, in this parable, the master who forgave the massive debt is meant to show us the father. The servant who has forgiven the massive debt is meant to show us us. And the, the servant who was not forgiven the tiny debt is meant to show us others. So the master comes back into the picture who is the father, or the father figure, and he says to us, he says to the, the wicked servant, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt that you pleaded with me because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? There it is. Right there. Should you not have had mercy as I had mercy on you? Or let's put it in a positive way, in, a, in an affirmative way. The, you should have had mercy because I have had mercy on you. That's the reason why. That's the reason for obedience. Verse 34. And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he could, should pay all his debt. Jesus again repeats, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now we all look at that and we'll say, well, duh, the servant should have forgiven his debtor. I mean, that's, that's the fair thing. And he didn't do it, so that's not very fair. That's not, that's not very kind. The way he acted was kind of hypocritical, wasn't it? But isn't that so often the way that we approach offenses in our life? So we want to be let off the hook for the great things that we do. I mean, infinite sin against an infinite God, infinitely holy God. We want to be let off the hook for that, but we want to hold everyone else to account for the trivial things they put us through. We must forgive much because we have already been forgiven much. 
Back in the parable, the master gives mercy. He forgives a huge debt. As I said, we're meant to see that as the Father forgiving us. Christ is the means by which the Father forgives. He is the instrument of forgiveness. Because He paid the debt, we no longer have to. Should we not also have mercy on others? Because He has forgiven the debt, we no longer have the debt. Should we not also forgive others their debts against us? Our prayer for forgiveness must be connected to a humble willingness to obey, to do the same thing for others. And again, we could say the same thing about any blessing of God. How can you ask for a blessing from God if you're not willing to be a blessing for others? Secondly, we we need the power to obey the enabling power to follow Christ's commands. Again, keeping Jesus' example of forgiveness. Look at how his relationship or this relationship between our being forgiven shifts uh, in, in our forgiving of others. It's explained differently after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. God's, when we read it in, the, in Matthew, and when Jesus speaks of it before the resurrection, he speaks of it as you forgive so that you can be forgiven. Right? After the resurrection, we see a shift in language. You forgive because you have been forgiven. So the parable of, that we read of the, un, of the unfaithful, of the unkind, ungenerous servant who wouldn't forgive. He was already forgiven, therefore he should have forgiven, right? Not the other way around. This is what we see after the resurrection. You must forgive because you have been forgiven. God's forgiveness has already been provided to us in Christ. It has already been secured in Christ. So look, don't, don't skip over the little words here. What does he say? He says, uh, as God in Christ forgave you. As, don't skip over those little words, as. This means in the same way, in like manner. Christ took it all on himself, all the abuse, all the affliction, all the persecution, and he said, forgiven. Do you remember at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted? Blessed are you when you are spoken evil of on my account and when they revile you. Why would that be a blessed thing? Because you have an opportunity to display the enormity, the magnitude of God's forgiveness that we have received in Christ. You can embody that. You can clear up. You can fill up, as Paul said, fill up what is lacking in Christ's sacrifice. How could anyone, anything be lacking in Christ's sacrifice? I'll tell you what's lacking is the physical juxtaposition, the physical presence. You can demonstrate physically in real time what Christ demonstrated on the cross. That's why it is blessed. and You should consider yourself blessed when you are reviled and persecuted. You have an opportunity to fill in what is lacking in Christ's sacrifice. You have a chance to rely on Him 
for every ounce of strength that you need, a chance to point straight to him and say, it's not by might nor by my power, but it's by your spirit, Lord. In Colossians 3.12, Paul writes something similar. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So God's chosen, we are to put on because we're God's chosen as God's chosen ones. Remember, don't skip the small words. Put on because of our virtue of being Christians, being God's children, chosen in Christ, all who would believe and trust in him from the foundation of the world. Those of us who are chosen in Christ by virtue of being redeemed, by the power of our adoption in Christ, this is what we are. We are compassionate hearts. We are kind. We are humble. We are meek and patient, bearing with one another, verse 13. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Let me ask you a question. Do compassionate people forgive debts? Isn't it sort of bound up in compassion that that's what you do? Do kind people, do they forgive debts? Isn't that a kind thing to do? Humble? I have been forgiven much, so I will forgive much. Meek people? Remember, meek is synonymous with gentle and lowly. Is it gentle and lowly to forgive debts? To not, to not demand that you be paid what you're owed? Is that, is that meek? What about patience? Patient people. Is it an exercise of patience to forgive someone's debt? You bet it is. Especially over and over again. To forgive someone's trespasses? You bet it's an exercise in patience. Look at what he says. As a justification for all these traits, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness, he says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. He has forgiven. Again, that's past tense. That's something that he has already done for you, a debt that is paid by Jesus. Freely you have received, now freely give. There's no precondition to that. Your, your debt is paid. Do you know how free it makes you when all of your debts are canceled? Amen. Amen. Yes, sir. If, you, if you had no obligation of debt, you had not, now think about it. How free could you be in giving to others, in handing out mercy to others? Just take all of your, your debt payments off the table. Everything that you owe, how much more would you be free to say to someone who was in need, let me take care of that for you. I can do it because I'm free. I'm not worried about paying my own obligations. I can take care of you. I can take some of yours on myself. There is no precondition for receiving mercy from God. And this in itself is power. I say that because forgiveness and salvation, justification, whatever you want to call it, it comes by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It is a gift, not a transaction. Ephesians 2.8, that's what that says if you need a reference for that. This means that there, there's not a preconditional work that we have to do in order to obtain mercy that is offered in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, for the forgiveness of our debts to God. In fact, that's exactly what the preacher of Hebrews tells us. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, he tells us that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness but is without sin. 
And because of that, we can confidently approach the throne of grace in order to receive mercy and grace. Jesus, the high priest, he is the precondition for forgiveness and justification. He already purchased that for us. He paid that debt. Freeing us makes us free agents to be instruments of forgiveness. That is his power to obey. So let me be clear as I close this up. I told Casey I'd try to keep it quick so they could get out this morning. You're welcome. Jesus is the precondition for our forgiveness, our justification. He is the reason and the power. We must be careful to heed his words very carefully. He did say, if you do not forgive, neither will your father forgive you. Not one time, but multiple times. So that is, that's a warning. It's not obedient to ask for forgiveness Receive it and then refuse to give it. I don't mean to detract from that warning at all. But Jesus, in trying to tell us that you you need to couple your prayer with humble obedience, don't be hypocritical when you pray. Remember, he said, don't be like the hypocrites when you pray. Don't be hypocritical when you pray. Couple your prayer with humble obedience. In demonstrating this, he goes to our area of greatest need What I'm saying is that in all of our areas of prayer, whether it be for forgiveness or provision or healing or blessing or wisdom or whatever, there must be connected to humble obedience, a willingness to follow the will and the word of the Lord. And your prayers go unheeded and unanswered because of unwillingness to obey. Because you have not reckoned with your resistance to the will of God. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And I'm not saying that puts your answer of prayer on you. There's not a formula for it. You don't have the certain words to say or the certain formula to fill out. And then God does what? But God does require of us sincerity. He does require of us that we at very least struggle to willingly obey. And in that, we've been provided sufficient reason and sufficient power to do just that if we keep our eyes on Christ. And I'm going to let you go at that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again for your word. Thank you for gathering us here today. I thank you that you have been provision for us and that you have been power for us And you are reason for us. Lord, help us to keep your word and obey you as we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.